Welcome to episode 20 of the Language Neuroscience Podcast. I'm sorry for the intermittent podcasting, but I do have a bunch of new episodes in the pipeline, and I'm really happy to share today's episode. My guest is Fred Dick, Professor of Auditory Cognitive Neuroscience in the Department of Psychological Sciences at Birkbeck University of London. Fred is an old friend of mine from grad school, around the turn of the millennium, and we've collaborated on several papers over the years. He does beautiful cognitive neuroscience research around the themes of audition, learning, attention, language, and music. His papers are richly detailed, thoughtful, and always a joy to read. Today we're going to focus in particular on his paper entitled Extensive Tonotopic Mapping Across Auditory Cortex is Recapitulated by Spectrally Directed Attention and Systematically Related to Cortical Milo Architecture with co-authors Lahet, Callahan, Keller, Serino, and Holt. came out in the Journal of Neuroscience in 2017. I'd also like to mention that Fred is the person who actually taught me how to do stats in real life. He taught me in Jump, which is what he was using at the time, and I don't know if he's still using it, but I have to admit that I still am. It's my native language for ANOVAs. Okay, let's get to it. Hi, Fred. How are you? Hey, Stephen. Uh, good to see you again. I, it's good to I, see you too. I am very pleased to, uh, to actually be back in touch after a few years. Yeah, it's been a while. I was thinking about like when was the last time we caught up? It was when I still lived in Tucson, right? It was. Yeah, we've been in, in email contact, but not actually in uh, even in virtual space. Yeah. So, so um, you, I kind of got to see a bit of this while we were like, you know, futzing with Zoom for the last 10 minutes. But like, can you kind of share with me like where you are today and so I'm sitting in uh, the in Buckney, the Brookback UCL Center for Neuroimaging, which uh, has now two scanners. So we just put in a uh, a new Prisma. Now, actually, a couple of years ago, after a remarkable, almost decade long saga, uh-huh. uh, putting that in, uh, which it definitely aged me. And uh, but now it's everything is happy. Of course, the uh, the scanner went in. Uh, a few months before the pandemic hit. Oh, um, right. So, so it has not been used as much as we'd like, but, uh, but it's starting up again now. And, uh, even, even the director, um, is, is starting to use it again. So are, are you the director? I am indeed the director, <laughs> uh, for my sins, even the director. Um, um yeah which honestly it sounds so highfalutin but honest it really involves um doing things like getting the scanner cleaned and mopping up and wet vacuuming when there is a flood around the rf cage oh yeah no it's funny like when i was in arizona i got quite involved in the day-to-day setup and and running of our scanner and i remember the the head of radiology at the time like coming to me one day and going like, Stephen, this is what, this is what leadership is. And I was like, really? (laughs) (laughs) Like leadership is like stepping into the the gap that nobody else will fill. You know, it's like when you see something that's not working and you're like that, but that just has to work. I'm going to have to make that work because nobody else is making it work. Apparently that's leadership. Evidently, I guess leadership is, is, you know, trying to, uh, to get reasonable passwords for the internet routers and failing multiple times, but (laughs) Well, um, yeah. yeah. So you're blaming <laughs> yourself for our Zoom connectivity problems? Is that what you said? Uh, uh, only in part. Only in part. Um, okay. <laughs> we have lots of them, so I can just keep going around rooms. So currently, I'm actually sitting in our very uh, uh, child-friendly uh, MRI suite with a, an MRI-compatible okay. um, uh, monkey that can actually go in with the kids. Um, 
That's lovely. I should take a screenshot of that and, and use that for the podcast, the MRI-compatible <laughs> monkey. <laughs> oh, and, yes, exactly. And we have uh, MRI-compatible Leo on the other side. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I want those. Yeah. They're really, they're cute. Um, I would think that most plushies are MRI compatible, but you probably have to pay like $300 to get one that's guaranteed to be, right? I'm sure that's true. Um, <laughs> but uh, we can uh, scan them with abandon after a little bit of, uh, of uh, metal detection. But um, yeah, but they make cool. the kids happier. And they're really nice to have on a Friday afternoon. Yeah, sometimes, I mean, yeah, I think we should take more lovies into our offices. Things would be better. Yeah. Um, okay. And- uh, next to me, I'll just I'll point out also a picture that you may have remembered. So this is our former director Marty Sereno's uh, drawing of a, a neuron uh, with all its boutons in the nucleus isthmi of the turtle. Wow! Um, yeah. So yeah, I know that well in the turtle. In the turtle. Yes. Yeah, I know that Marty was always studying the brains of creatures that you didn't expect to be studied, like you know, catching squirrels on the UC San Diego campus and yeah. <laughs> putting <laughs> electrodes in their brains. Um, yeah, it's either, it was either Marty or the, uh, the coyotes. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. so um, I've known you for more than 20 years. Um, and, and like me, like your interests have evolved a lot over that time. So the first thing I wanted to ask you was like, what are your core interests as a scientist right now? As a uh, so as a cognitive neuroscientist, um, uh, my interests strangely have actually remained the same. But I think that that uh, like you, the way that that we've approached the problems has perhaps uh, 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 changed over the years. Um, and if if nothing else, in my case, actually gone back full circle. So so my interests started out really being driven by uh, by my previous experience, both as a as a somewhat successful but not always successful um, learner of of second, third, fourth, and fifth languages, uh, as well as being a musician, and and how those processes kind of inter, uh, intersected whether they did um, how individual differences in, in uh, kind of basic things like attention to sound, sensitivity to different uh, sound features, uh, as well as, as personal characteristics like you know, confidence and, and uh, kind of overall uh, arousal levels and so on contributed to success in, uh, in learning both of these, these expert skills. Um, and then as I went on, I became more and more interested in the process that actually allows you to do that. So what are the mechanisms um, uh, that, that occur in, in brains more generally that, that uh, allow us to perform these expert skills? Uh, what are the constraints uh, that need to be kind of built into the brain? Uh, but also how does the brain change, uh, change to do that? And how many different ways are there to actually solve that problem? So when I was at uh, UCSD, I kind of uh, explored a number of different regions, uh, reasons, uh, excuse me, explored a number of, of uh, different routes towards trying to figure out that problem. So initially, again, like you, uh, looking at, at people who have strokes and what happens to them after, um, 
uh, after their stroke. So for, uh, initially adults, but then also kids uh, who had strokes. And uh, first, what happens to their behavior? How, why do they show sometimes very, very dramatic and what looks like selective deficits in their in their ability to understand different sentence types or words and so on? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but then also, why, how, what is is kind of preserved? What what interactions with the environment uh, actually drive that that profile of deficits or sparings? Uh, and how does that change with the development? Uh, so this is uh, really inspired in large part by by Liz Bates's research, um, yeah, uh, as well as as the rest of my amazing uh, uh, set of of advisors at, at UCSD, uh, and and yeah. so I kind of think of the of actually the work that I'm doing now, which is which is again looking at at the way that the brain changes itself. Uh, when faced with novel learning problems to be quite similar to that. Uh, right. That initial set of, of questions that I was asking. Okay. So you've got like a, a, a real theme running through all of the various things that you've worked on. Yeah. I, I may be the only person who sees it. <laughs> <laughs> I think that I realized that I, that I didn't have a theme in my, in my scientific pursuits when I had to write my first job applications and you know you have to write the research statement i was like well language in the brain but apart from that it's like whatever like caught my fancy on any given day um i've become more focused since then but uh yeah i remember back when i realized that i'd basically spent grad school just you know doing whatever caught you know caught my eye um you had, so, you had, you had good taste though well i did you know we did some cool stuff i mean and yeah we worked together so yeah. um so, you know, just kind of t stepping back even before that, like, you know, did you become interested, was it as a child that you started the, um, the second and third language acquisition and the violin or like, is that how, how old were you when these interests first developed? So I was old by, by musician standards when I started. So I was always interested in music and, and, uh, in my family, we listened to a lot of music, uh, uh, just in the house. Um, mostly kind of, you know, European art music, so classical music. Mm -hmm. uh, but my dad was also a real jazz aficionado, which unfortunately made me really hate jazz up until uh, I was an adult. I, I always regret. But um, uh, but so I started uh, violin when I was almost 10 and piano a few years before that. Uh, uh, and then, you know, being uh, American in the, uh, in the 80s, uh, I didn't really start learning languages until I was in like seventh grade. So like 12 and 13. Um, but I was really lucky because I had some really good Spanish teachers. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, yeah. And, uh, but I never really thought of, of either of those uh, from a, a scientific angle. Um, when did the scientific interest in them develop? Much later. Uh, so part of it was actually in trying to figure out, uh, especially as a, as a musician, how to get myself to learn better. Uh, because that is essentially what, as an instrumentalist, you're always trying to do. So you spend six hours a day uh, practicing and trying to essentially make yourself a better uh, a better machine in, in mm -hmm. a lot of ways um, and a much more automated and efficient and and uh, accurate machine. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the 
one thing that I was always interested in was, you know, how, why are these, you know, what drives these huge differences in, in, you know, how good people are at that. Uh, and in particular, how does attention play a role, uh, both in, in the, uh, both a kind of moment to moment attention, but particularly sustained attention, which maybe I'll come uh-huh. back later. Um, and, and your ability to control that sustain, sustained attention to a particular dimension. So it's something that musicians think about all the time. Like what are you, as you're, as you're performing, but particularly as you're practicing, what are you actually focusing on moment to moment? Is this, this amazing amount of mind control over minutes, which you really don't get in almost any other pursuit. I wonder if it's kind of similar to meditation, right? I mean, like I've never been a meditator, but it, it sort of sounds like the way that people describe learning to meditate it really you know, is do you, it have, is. you ever like tried that or is it similar i have yeah. except that i always have problems not falling asleep when i'm meditating um which yeah. would be more catastrophic when you're holding a violin in your hands um yeah <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah i know how uh, much those violins cost i know that you need to get like a separate insurance policy and like a separate airline seat for your violins and so yeah. on uh, yeah uh, huh, okay so um, yeah, when I first met you, you were working on this um, really cool psych review paper on why it was basically like, um, you know, why do people with aphasia seem to show these particular patterns of grammatical deficits? And you kind of like explain that in a very, I don't know, from from an outside perspective, right? It was not a grammatical explanation. It was a processing explanation. Yeah. Which- um, yeah. Which I should actually say. So, uh, as with I, I've, I think maybe the uh, the thing that has characterized my a lot of my work, sadly, is that it's a bit of uh, being a scientific magpie, in that I've picked up ideas along the way and then kind of put them together in in uh, something that hopefully has a has a you know functional role. So in this case, uh, I actually came to UCSD from Morten Gerensbacher's lab at uh, the University of Wisconsin-Madison, uh, where she had just done a uh, collaboration with Mark St. John, who was actually at UCSD in the cognitive science department. And they had had done a, an early connectionist stimulation of, of what happens uh, when you just look at the relative frequency and consistency of grammatical structures. Um, when in networks that are learning to to uh, you know understand who's doing what to whom, and what Mark and and Martin Ann did was to show that that uh, the relative resistance to breakdown uh, when you lesioned these these you know pretty simple artificial neural networks uh, was really strongly predicted by a frequency by regularity interaction. And, and so when I came to UCSD, uh, Liz Bates actually put me on a project that was really related to that because it was something that I'd worked on as a, uh, as a special student in, uh, in Morton Gerensbacher's lab uh-huh. uh, after, uh, you know, stepping off wet eared from the plane from, from Germany as a, as a violinist. And, uh, and, and so the work that, that Liz and, and, uh, and I did on with the, on the psych review paper was very much based on on kind of that general framework so what how can you apply different levels of kind of stress or noise to a system externally uh to to kind of probe its probe its secrets and what's the what's the 
the most parsimonious explanatory framework for the pattern of, of, of behavior that you see. So uh, using a, a, the sort of simplest toy paradigm ever with four sentence types, uh, but that, that uh, you know, differed along, along uh, these uh, frequency and regularity um, uh, dimensions, uh, we could actually show that, that the pattern of results that you see in aphasic patients uh, with this particular paradigm was really well predicted by, by um, how frequently you you produced or or um, or encountered that particular structure, and also how often that structure mapped on to a sort of more um, uh, more general word order uh, mm -hmm. uh, frequency. So you could explain what appeared to be this rather selective, like syntactic deficit that had been explained by sort of linguistically inspired people in those terms, but you could explain it based on more superficial um, properties of the the system. Exactly. So how does how does a, a sort of general associative system uh, deal uh, break down under? Uh, uh, under different conditions when it has been placed in a, in a given learning environment. Uh, yeah. And, and so this was, you know, it's an idea that's been around for a long time, uh, but, but it was quite a nice demonstration that, that uh, you can actually show this uh, not only in people with brain damage, but also in, uh, in college students before they, Acquire brain damage just by giving them a little bit, <laughs> a little bit of uh, of stress, either acoustically or uh, uh, or making the task a little bit harder. Right. Uh, yeah. So, simulating aphasia in college students. Exactly. So, yeah that that was cool stuff. But then, like you know, you kind of like disappeared and moved to London. And uh, uh, how did that come about? Uh, so that was that was uh, another one of these uh, these strokes of fate, where uh, where I was um, just finishing my PhD, and and uh, a very very close friend of mine from the UCSD who had gone to Britain, and ended up at Birkbeck College, the University of London, uh, uh, called me. Uh, one day and said, hey, there is a job you should apply for at Brickbeck. And I had never heard of this place before. Uh, well, actually, I had because Annette Carmel Smith and Mark Johnson were, or uh, Mark was actually there at, at that point. It sort of floated on the horizon. Uh, and and I thought, oh, well, this is ridiculous. I'm not even having my PhD yet. But, but it, you know, the, the application was easy. And I thought oh, it would be like good experience. Uh, mm -hmm. And and then uh, I applied, and and to my great surprise, they said, "Hey, you should come out and do this interview in three weeks in London." Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, I uh, sort of uh, scrabbled together a a talk, and uh, and got. I think you were there at that point. I think you were one of the people who who was subjected to my uh, my practice talk. It's possible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um and and then went over and and in britain things happen really fast with jobs so i did a couple of uh i did a, a talk and then an interview a couple of days later and then at 4 30 the afternoon they're like hey do you want the job if so you have two weeks to decide um, did, did you take the two weeks or did you know right away? I did take the two weeks uh, uh, to figure out um, what I could do because I'd actually also um, uh, 
at that point taken a, a postdoc position with Steve Small. Uh, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so uh, Steve very, very kindly uh, allowed me to do the postdoc, um, but also allowed me to leave early um, at, at quite a tumultuous period, I have to say as well, uh, because Liz was sick at that point. Yeah. And, um, and, and so I did a kind of flyover postdoc in, in Steve's lab. And then, uh, uh, in the, in the spring went over to, uh, to London and started, and I've been, been here ever since. Yeah. You never came back. I mean, has it, has it ever come up that you might come back or you just kind of like totally settled into being like a, you know, a a displant, a transplanted American expat now? No, it, it has. I mean, I've, I have definitely thought about it, uh, uh, more recently and less recently. So, but, uh, but, um, London is an amazing place to, uh, to, uh, do work in language and, and in audition, um, it's, it's a really concentrated environment, uh, not only at Birkbeck and UCL where I am now, but just sort of around the, uh, around the entire city as well as Oxford and Cambridge, which, you know, are, are really close by. Yeah. Uh, and, and so it's, it's, it's a fantastic environment and really, uh, um, very collaborative one. So, and London is obviously a great, a great, uh, city. Although I know that you have your reservations about it. About London. Oh, I don't know. I mean, like, no, I think it's a great city. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't remember what my reservations were. <laughs> I think it might've been uh, with some nasty weather and, and, uh, and, and kind of smog, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's no, it's no Sydney, but I mean, it, I'd live there. Yeah. <laughs> um, cool. So, um, about a decade ago, I guess, must've been maybe a little bit more, you got into what you call Milo architectonic mapping, which is just a super cool term just as a word. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so with the, you know, we're going to kind of talk a bit about this paper, recent paper, but, um, you know, you kind of have some Milo architectonic papers that precede our sort of focus paper for today um can you tell us like you know first of all like what is milo architectonic mapping uh that is a good question so uh hopefully first not a misnomer uh uh when you when you talk about it using mri so so in from the the good old days indeed over over a century ago uh, one of the first the first types of stains that people were able to do in the brain uh, was was uh, to look at at the degree of of myelin in tissue, uh, but postmortem tissue, mm-hmm. uh, and and for instance, uh, Flexig uh, uh, in you know nineteen about nineteen ten uh, all the way up into the fifties uh, did these remarkable studies. Uh, looking at the development of of myelin patterns, both subcortically and cortically, uh, and showed that that uh, they proceed at a, at a quite systematic in a systematic way, where where primary cortices are tend to be early myelinated and more heavily myelinated, uh, which has been shown by a number of other anatomists as well, uh, and and it proceeds in a, a relative stereotype manner. Uh, but it really gives you an idea of basically kind of where the where the uh, the uh, linchpins or uh, of of uh, brain connectivity are, and also where where different modalities may lay. Um, 
and and in the intervening period, of course, a lot of interest has been uh, uh, kind of generated by these maps, uh, both in terms of understanding what the what the potential uh, functional importance of myelin is, uh, both for for um, kind of neural processing, uh, but also particularly for learning. Um, my interest uh, in using that in MRI was really driven by the fact that the auditory system in particular is really organized or seems to be organized a, um, by the degree to which uh, uh, myeloarchitectonic patterns, so the degree of myelination, um, segregates different auditory areas. Um, so and, are you talking, just just before we get too far down, like, yeah. are you talking myelination, like in, in the gray matter ribbon or in the, only in the white matter? So, uh, in generally in the, in the, uh, in the cortex itself. So, okay. So we're talking like the start of like the axon when it's just come out of the neuron, but it hasn't like kind of gone into those big white matter bundles that sort of make it white matter already. It's myelinated, right? Close to the cell body. Exactly. So you're, so you're looking at the actual strip of, you know, three, four millimeter strip of cortex and you're looking at myelin content there. Uh, so, uh, yes. Yeah. So, so for instance, if you do a postmortem stain, so a Galia stain, for instance, of, of, uh, the, the Heschel's gyrus, what you'll see is that the, the kind of mid layers So uh, uh, so for instance, like layer four, uh, uh, distinguished by, by a particular, um, pattern of, of, uh, cyto architectonics so the kind of cell lines that are in there, uh, tends to really stain very deeply, uh, for, for myelin, mm -hmm. uh, that's characteristic of primary areas like a one, uh, which is actually quite difficult to, uh, to identify in, in human cortex. Uh, but it is, it is really a characteristic of particular, uh, cortical layers. Uh, and this, the, the heaviness of that stain uh, is one of the characteristics that people use uh, in, in a number of non-human uh, non species to identify um, uh, what's called auditory core. So they, they're kind of um, input regions from the medial geniculate into cortex, uh, but also uh, secondary and tertiary auditory areas. Uh -huh. so, so what has, what, has been frustrating within, I think, human auditory and language neuroscience is that that you know up until recently, uh, we would say, okay, well, you know, we're looking at at um, these early auditory areas, um, but we didn't actually know how to identify them. We sort of had an idea, okay, they're on Heschel's gyrus mostly based on on postmortem work. Um, but it was quite unclear where they kind of began and ended, how many of them were, were how much individual variation there was. Uh, but, but one of the ways to, to find them was to combine uh, looking at frequency preference, so tonertopy, so the, the gradation of, of um, frequency preference across, across auditory cortex uh, with patterns of myelination. And uh -huh. MR, MR is, of course, uh, highly sensitive to the degree to which uh, uh, brain matter is myelinated, which is why you can see in a typical uh, T1-weighted image uh, that that you know that that white matter is is bright in a T1-weighted uh, T1 image, and uh, gray matter is gray, and and uh, and it, it, it distinguishes between those, but. 
what's been shown in uh, uh, over the last 15 years or so is that that we can actually look within cortex itself mm -hmm. in more subtle patterns of of myelination using both quantitative techniques where you can actually estimate how long it takes for protons to relax uh, and mm -hmm. therefore is, is a, a more direct measure, measure of myelination. Or if you actually just look at, at the relative signal brightness um, uh, in both T1 and T2 weighted images and take a kind of ratio measure. Uh, and this also gives you a kind of estimate of, of, of relative myelination. So by combining a couple of different measures, we can, we can really triangulate on where in a particular person, uh, uh, primary auditory cortex is and kind of use that as, as a interpretive base um, for, for understanding a particular person's brain. Right. Okay. So you, so you were driven to this interest by wanting to identify where primary areas are in an individual on a structural basis, which isn't obvious any other way. Exactly. Um, um, but you're still going to combine that with functional measures as well, such as tonotopic gradients to identify primary auditory cortex in this case. Exactly. Um, and it's not, I mean, any scanner can do these myeloarchitectonic mapping, right? It's not like, you know, you don't need like particularly specialized sequences. It, is that right? So it depends. So the, there are a number of different ways of, of doing the scan. So um, thanks to to my uh, great physicist friend, so uh, Nick Weisskopf, uh, Martina Callahan, uh, Antoine Luti, uh, as well as Marty Serena, who has been involved with, with all of this. Uh, uh, they have developed a number of quantitative sequences uh, that, that actually are special uh, insofar as they're not something that comes on the scanner. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so they allow you to, to estimate with really uh, like quite good uh precision uh what the the true relaxation rates are uh for for um different tissues mm -hmm. uh, and therefore that's that is a sort of more direct index of the degree of myelination uh when you compare that with with post-mortem work uh you can also use what i was referring to before these these uh ratio measures so when you take t2 or t1 uh, ratios from just clinical scans. Um, and these give you very similar patterns in many cases. So this is a, um, this is something that you now see, uh, uh, in the human connectome project. Um, and that, that mass Glasser, uh, and David Venison in particular have been really, um, uh, uh, very much at the forefront of, of developing as a technique. Mm -hmm. Um, and and so you can use those as well as kind of a, as a marker of these of these different areas, and they've done really you know comprehensive work at looking at the at the um, the correspondence of of uh, gradients of these of these um, of of image brightness in these t in these ratio measures and how these correspond, for instance, to functional connectivity differences or activation and so on, uh, and are the basis of, for instance, their their um, parcellation schemes. Uh, right. Yeah, this is so fascinating. I mean, I remember when we were in grad school, like there was just no way to like make any inferences about psychoarchitectonics in in except you know in postmortem, and it, and it, it seemed like a real limitation. But it's just exciting that that you know that these new imaging approaches are kind of overcoming that roadblock. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, sorry. I, I, so one thing I think that that is really exciting, uh, and as, as sequences get better and we get better at, at analyzing them, uh, that that the amount of data that we have, particularly looking across individuals in a particular species or in humans usually, uh, gives us a really different view of of not only consistency but also the variability in normal myeloarctic mapping mm -hmm. and so this is something that that really you know up until now has not really been amenable to quantification because uh in in post-mortem tissue uh it's you know there are only a few people in the world who can actually flatten it there are always massive distortions and obviously uh uh, you can only do a few uh, a few um, subjects at you know at a time, and they're very difficult to kind of put together. Uh, right. But but with these new imaging techniques, you can really get you know hundreds of people and and ask how you know how similar are people, how different are people, what how what what's the kind of level of of consistency in what we think of as really a kind of fundamental organizing pr principle in the brain. Yeah. Um, and, and so this is a, a fun thing to look at, uh, in terms of, of cortical evolution, uh, in terms of, of making cross species comparisons, mm -hmm. uh, and, but also thinking very, uh, kind of more broadly about, for instance, cortical development. Right. Um, yeah, I know. And I noticed in the paper that we're about to talk about in more detail, like, you know, you always have all the individual subject functional maps and structural maps presented in your papers. And I think that's something that you probably like you know, Marty Serena was always doing that in his work. And I can, you can, yep. you can really see that influence there. Um, so let's kind of like talk more about this paper that we agreed to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> it's called extensive tonotopic mapping across auditory cortex is recapitulated by spectrally directed attention and systematically related to cortical Milo architecture. I love that title. Thank kind you. of like <laughs> explains, it, it just explains everything about the paper. Like, um, so, you know, we've talked a bit about how like kind of this Milo architecture is like really an important part of this because it allows you to identify regions structurally. Um, and then we're going to, and then let's talk a little bit about tonotopic mapping. So we talked about that already. It's just this, just the idea that, you know, there are these gradients across the cortex where neurons differ in which frequency they prefer to respond to. And there's many different fMRI paradigms that can be used to map that out as we have actually worked on together. Um, but can you tell us how you do it in this particular paper that we're talking about? Like, how do you do the tonotopic mapping? The, the, uh, the way that we do just the tonotopic mapping is pretty simple here. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and so uh, usually what, uh, what we do, and this is really based on, on Marty's techniques from the 90s, uh, is to present slow sweeps of of either bandpass filtered sounds or white noise or tones um, that, that ascend or slowly descend uh, at, at a periodic rate. Uh, and, and then you, you look to see whether or not there are, there, there are signals, for instance, at, at a voxel-wise level um, where you see uh, locking greater responses uh, to one phase of that of that cycle as you sort of slowly go up or, or go down uh so so um we can see for instance if a if a voxel prefers low frequencies uh, and we start a, a sweep with low frequencies 
uh, going up to high frequencies, that that um, that voxel will show an enhanced response at the beginning of that cycle mm-hmm. uh, overall. And then if there is another voxel that prefers high frequencies, uh, then we see it um, see that uh, that increased response at the end of the cycle. Uh, so it's a kind of simple but really robust technique. And so what we did here is actually make a kind of stepwise version of that uh, using five frequency bands um, for reasons that I'll explain a little bit uh, a little bit later. But we use these little what I call mini sequences, uh, mm-hmm. which always irritates uh, Adam Tierney. They're just sequences. Um, <laughs> I prefer. There's mini nothing sequences. mini about them. They are mini. They're four. They're four tones, uh, and it's a kind of cute little uh, cute little paradigm. It sounds like. Um, but actually goes up or down in a, in a staircase and, and people's task is simply to, to detect whenever you hear repetition in one of those, those little, uh, uh, mini Mini sequences and, uh, sorry, Adam. And, um, and so this, uh, this does mean that you have to really pay attention. Uh, and, and, uh, as Marty is, has shown in, uh, in many of his papers, uh, attention to the, the mapping stimulus is really important. Uh, right. so we yeah. want people to like focus in on those, uh, on the, the details of that. So then in this case, we simply ask, uh, at each of the five levels of, uh, frequency, um, uh, what, what frequency evokes the strongest, the strongest bold response. And we call that the, the winner response. And that's a really typical way of, of doing mapping. Yep. Um, but we can also ask what, what frequency, uh, is actually the least, uh, the evokes the least response. And we call that the loser takes all, which is yeah. maybe my favorite, my favorite, uh, thing to sneak into a paper. Oh, I, I mean, I think this paper is just so full of Fredisms. Um, <laughs> I, I really enjoyed reading it. It's just, you know, you, you, you write like you speak and, um, yeah, I, there's a, there's just like a lot of turns of phrase that I enjoyed. Oh, thank you. Um, another thing that I know, I mean, another thing I noticed early on in the methods is like you're like, okay, we acquired more than seven thousand functional volumes per per participant, and I was like, well, that's a lot of data, but they must have had a really really short TR. Like I'm sure you're doing multiband, you've got like a 300 millisecond TR or, or something. And then I get further down in the methods, like, no, you don't. It's like your TR is a second. Um, you've acquired more than almost two hours of functional data per subject. <laughs> it's a lot. We really wanted to make sure it worked. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So the, uh, you know, as you know, uh, auditory areas are small uh, and, and attention effects can be small. Uh, and and the, uh, uh, the, just to have enough power, it was, uh, but also just to give people enough time to actually do the, t- do the task and get kind of entrained to it. Uh, it was important to, uh, to get a lot of, a uh, lot of scanning done. Um, part of this was also, uh, it's uh, that, I mean, a lot of the, the, this paper was very much explicitly inspired by Aisha Saigon's work, um, uh, with Marty much earlier, uh, showing that, that there's this really widespread, um, uh, attentional mapping of retinotopic features, mm-hmm. um, and and so this in, in in a lot of ways this paper is sort of the uh, the auditory analog of of that. Um, yeah, yeah. The the, the it's clear. Yeah. Um, so with the um, the tonotopic organization, 
what do you, what do you find here? Like, which where do you see tonotopic organization? I mean, not getting into the attention part yet, but just with your basic tonotopic the, mapping stimulus, uh, we see uh, basically that the entire uh, temporal plane is tonotopically organized, um, and uh, which really corresponds to what you know, a lot of other groups uh, kind of most prominently, I think, uh, Michelle Morel and Federico De Martino. Uh, have shown in their really beautiful work uh, using often natural sounds, uh, which are mm -hmm. honestly better better than tones for um, uh, for establishing uh, tonotopy. But but you really see very robust tonotopic maps um, across the temporal plane and then down into the uh, onto the uh, the crown of the of the superior temporal gyrus um, and a little right. bit the uh, the superior temporal sulcus as well, uh -huh. depending on where where you look. Yeah, maybe the dorsal um, bank. Yeah. Um, you know, the paper is full of these very beautiful figures, so I definitely recommend to our listeners to check it out. Um, but, you know, without, you know, if people are maybe just doing the dishes or driving and they don't want to do that right now, um, can you kind of relate that to like, you know, how does how do the areas that are tonotopic relate to the Milo-identified primary auditory cortex? It's a complicated map. So when we look at... at uh, the correspondence between how tonotopic a voxel is and how heavily myelinated it is. Uh, what we see is that that when you look across across cortex, so across the entire temporal lobe, that that the kind of uh, local dips and troughs of of myelination uh, that are that can be quite severe um, can be explained or at least correspond with dips. And and uh, rises in the degree of tonotopicness, um, both at within the circular sulcus. So you see a shared drop in in tonotopicness and degree of myelination as you go from the uh, uh, medial part of the superior temporal gyrus uh, down into the circular sulcus abutting the uh, insula, and then equally. You see this shared drop in in how tonotopic a um, an area is and how myelinated it is along the lateral superior temporal gyrus, uh, and that's really conserved across people. Mm -hmm. um, what's interesting is that you also see a disconnect between those, um, uh, in more sort of uh, uh, in the middle of uh, the temporal uh, uh, superior temporal plane, uh, where there's a high degree of tonotopicity you actually see a drop in, in relative myelination. Mm. Um, so it's not a one-to-one -one correspondence. Uh, and, but and, with, yeah. And in general, I mean, you did see tonotopy that extended well beyond primary auditory cortex, right? Like well yes. beyond. Way yeah. beyond. Uh, but that, what you also do see is that there, so it's not just that you see, uh, for instance, that, that aud primary auditory cortex, uh, is highly myelinated and that everything else is just sort of less myelinated. Uh, what, what we've seen, and of course, what, what other people have seen as well, kind of most prominently in the, in the uh, Human Connectome Project, is that there are multiple gradients of, of, of increases and decreases in myelination. And more laterally, there's this, that, this increase in myelination and then a, a kind of sharp decrease as you go around the, uh, around the crown of the superior gyrus uh, that corresponds with the degree, uh, the change in the degree of tonotopicity. Hmm. Um, and, uh, and so that was a really interesting thing to see. And what, 
we've seen in thus far unpublished data, even though I analyzed it ages ago, is that that actually gives you a clue about where kind of more speech selective regions seem to start firing up. Hmm. Um, so it's quite a sharp boundary. Uh, and, and you can actually, when you look kind of uh, person by person uh, at where you start seeing kind of speechy looking responses, mm-hmm. uh, that's where, where this gradient is actually sharpest. So tell me where that is again. Like, So if you look uh, along the, the central part of the superior nerval gyrus going down uh-huh. into the sulcus, mm-hmm. uh, there's this kind of bifurcation where, where you see stuff that, that is, you know, very reactive to speech kind of coming online. Uh, and then the degree of tonotopicity and the, the degree of myelination fall off in tandem. As I'm, I'm, I guess I'm just trying to understand exactly where that gradient is maximal. Are you, is it like as the gyrus curls around and becomes the sulcus, like a spiritual exactly. sulcus? Yeah. Okay. That corresponds really well to like what we published in this 2018 neuroimage paper um, mm-hmm. using veins corrected fMRI to kind of try and look at more in more detail at like the, I mean, we have like auditory stimuli and written stimuli and kind of, it's, it's very interesting because the, the lateral surface of the STG is totally auditory and the written stimuli want nothing to do with it. And then as soon as you turn the corner and get into the STS, all of a sudden it's like totally fine with written or auditory, you know, it's like become a language yep. area. So that's really exciting for me to like hear that you guys are seeing the same kind of boundary there. Yeah. So I will publish this at some point in the near future. Um, and it's, it's something that I've talked to uh, a number of people about. And I, th- I think one, one thing that, that is really interesting about these, the kind of upper bank of the, of the superimposed sulcus is that at least when you look at what presumably is the analog in macaques, that there are these interlead auditory and visual areas. They're mm-hmm. very, very thin. Uh, and so, oops, someone is coming in. Who is it? I'm just in the middle of an interview. Uh, later, yes. Um. <laughs> I feel so important. <laughs> yes, I just said interview. It was very exciting. I know. Um, That's why I feel important. <laughs> uh, so, so what you see, I'll just sort of back up a little bit. So uh, when you look at the superior nervous sulcus, uh, which you see in these, these uh, beautiful papers from, from uh, Pandya and, and uh, who's that other no, it's, um, it's terrible. I, uh, a, McCreese? No. So it's earlier <laughs> than that. Um, Petritus? Yes, thank you. Okay. Uh, so they did all these beautiful tracer studies looking at, at these connections of these kind of abutting areas. Uh, so it makes sense that you would see kind of shared representation or, or rather overlapping representations that at least uh, using fMRI would look, you know, kind of blurred together. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and surely they talk to each other um, mm-hmm. quite a lot. And, and, and one thing that I'll, I always put in a plug for is, is that when we talk about, you know, auditory cortex, even in A1 itself, uh, uh, in ferret, for instance, uh, a substantial minority of, of single neurons in primary auditory cortex 
are actually driven mostly by visual input. Um, wow. Yeah. And <laughs> Jenny, Jenny Bisley, my colleague here at, at UCL, uh, has some really beautiful papers, you know, showing how many neurons there are that are really excited about visual input in ferret uh, in primary <laughs> auditory cortex. Uh, and there's no particular reason not to think that that, that is true in, uh, in, uh, in primates as well. Yeah, I mean, you know, humans, ferrets, we're essentially the same. Yeah. Ne neither of us are lettuces. Yeah, and, uh, and we can all wear cute outfits. Yeah. <laughs> I, um, I'm for some reason obsessed with with ferrets and cute outfits i don't know why okay well we'll have to i'll have to google that later <laughs> um <laughs> so okay we get a little sidetracked um from the main actual point of your paper although you know i'm pretty obsessed with the sds so as soon as you like start talking about that i'm gonna like go down that road um but you know this paper like so we've really we've been talking about sort of the you know milo architecture tonotopy but the paper's actually really about um, attention, auditory, like spectrally directed attention. And we haven't even really talked about that yet, but that's actually the main point of the paper. So um, can you now talk about like, you know, what you were trying to investigate with spectrally directed attention and what your hypothesis was? So it is a, in some ways, a really obvious question to ask in audition. So just as in, in vision, uh, where the kind of primary representational axis is the patterning that and repatterning of the retina across the cortex uh what you see in the auditory system is the pattern of repatterning of of the primary cochlear representation or axis of frequency uh and and we know that in vision that a, that a huge amount of the kind of oomph of what you see in in uh in uh cortical activity is due to to changes in, in attention and particularly in attention to particular parts of the visual scene um, as mapped up retinotopy. So one question was, do you actually see the same thing in an audition? Um, of course, it's it's one thing to actually ask people, okay, pay attention to this part of of a visual of of a visual scene. So if you get someone to you know um, keep looking at at a central fixation part. Uh, point or just an object, uh, but have them uh, pay attention to something that that's a little bit further away from the fovea. They can do that really easily. Mm -hmm. um, it's much harder to figure out how to do that in audition uh, uh, because people are not used to, you know, saying, "Oh, okay, well, let's pay attention to like twelve hundred hertz now." There's sort of no natural framework <laughs> for doing that. Um, uh, so I think that's that's uh, made it difficult to figure out. A, how to do that. So that was one of the, the things that we had to figure out um, practically. But but in terms of of why we would even ask this question and what it's relevant for uh, to begin with, uh, it's a good question. Uh, <laughs> and But there's a lot of different information in different frequency bands. Uh, so one thing that Laurie Holt and Adam Tierney and I have been particularly interested in over a number of years is, is how we kind of allocate attention to different dimensions um, of the acoustic signal uh, when they are more or less informative about a behavioral goal that we want to accomplish. And one of this, the, the kind of most striking dimension is indeed the spectrum. So either uh, particular frequencies, but more often frequency bands. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you take the example of speech, uh, as we've worked on, uh, there are certain bands of uh, the spectrum uh, that contain different information uh, about, for instance, vowel identity or consonant identity and so on. And uh, particularly when you have multiple talkers or, for instance, uh, a crowded acoustic environment, uh, it may be really helpful to kind of uh, place a um, more attentional gain on that particular part of the spectrum. And it allows you to, to ferret out behaviorally relevant information uh, more easily, uh, but perhaps also to there kind of- ferrets well, again. Exactly, the ferrets. We can make it be, um, <laughs> that I don't have a little ferret next to me. Um, uh, but, we, but we may also be able to suppress uh, irrelevant parts of the spectrum. Uh, which is something that kind of intuitively do we do all the time, for instance, in a bar. Uh, so you have, you know, all this kind of like noise uh, that might be broadband or kind of low, um, uh, low rumble or a high hiss. Uh, and, and the information that we really want to eke out might be in a somewhat more narrow band. Uh, so by, by attending to that, that particular part of the spectrum and filtering out other parts, uh, if you kind of take an engineering um, analog, uh, then we could really uh, kind of increase the uh, the efficacy of our, our our listening processes. So we wanted to ask: A, can we actually see that? Um, can we actually get people to do that in an, in a um, in an experimental task? And also, if we ask people to selectively attend to one frequency in a in a more, kind of more fully um, uh, populated acoustic space. Uh, can we actually see something that looks like like a um, uh, um, added activation in in some parts of the tonotopic map when you're attending to to for instance the uh, preferred frequency of a given voxel? Can attending to that frequency uh, up activation? And conversely, uh, if we ignore that the best frequency or the preferred frequency of that voxel, can we actually make activation go down? Mm. Um, okay. So just to kind of summarize, your hypothesis is that like you can get a ton that you'll be able to get a tonotopic map without even physically changing the frequency of the stimulus, but just by having people attend to different frequency bands, you want to see if you can re- recapitulate those same tonotopic maps, but but driving it by attention alone. So attention to a given frequency band will be enough to activate the neurons corresponding exactly. to that band. Um, exactly. So we should be able to just map out most of, of tonotopic cortex by actually just asking people to pay attention to to uh, different frequencies over time. So can you talk uh, about like what the stimulus, how do you set up the stimulus and task for that? That was really hard. Uh, so what we ended up doing um, uh, was to have always two bands of these mini sequences uh, so you can think of it if in musical terms as kind of like the uh, the you know um, soprano voice and the bass voice, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and both of these voices um, uh, are or um, or parts are are defined by by these mini sequences. Uh, so you have these two melodies going in, in different parts of the uh, of the spectrum. Uh, and, and we just ask people to pay attention to the high one or the low one. Uh, but over time, what we do is we change uh, which band those, those two mini sequence streams are in. 
such that over the course of a um, of a run, uh, we actually sampled the entire space of the spectrum that we're able to stimulate with the uh, the headphones, uh, and each band uh, is either is attended to in the presence of each other band. Mm-hmm. Um, such that that we can ask, okay, when when for instance the highest frequency is in the presence of um, uh, any of the other frequency bands, and we actually ask you to attend high or attend low, uh, that we can see which voxel prefers um, uh, it when you're attending to the high band versus the low band, uh, and then work out on the basis of sampling across that entire frequency range. Uh, uh, what the voxel's preferred uh, attentional frequency is. Uh, mm-hmm. and so, it's a really hard task. Oh, it's I, really, I, really hard. Yeah, and I'm sure that people just love doing that for two hours. <laughs> it's, you know, oddly, it's quite. It feels quite improving. People didn't mind doing it. It's difficult, uh, but you felt I, it was the first task that I've ever done where I actually felt more awake after an hour and a half of doing it. Hmm. actually Maybe. feels a lot like doing ear training. Okay. Yeah. I'll, t- I'll have to take your word for it. Um, I'll object to you to it. No, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what did you find? So what we found was indeed uh, uh, we could actually basically uh, map out most of the tonotopic, uh, tonotopic cortex just by having people attend uh, to these these frequency bands, um, and what was quite cool is that we could also do that in primary auditory cortex. It's, it's not really similar to what you see in vision. So that was one of our kind of primary questions: Can you actually modulate all across auditory cortex by attention, uh, including uh, including primary auditory cortex? Uh, so that that did distinguish to some degree uh, what the auditory system from from the visual one. In that, and that at least in some studies, for instance, in Aisha Saigon's paper, um, uh, V1 was really not uh, intentionally mappable. Do you think that A1 is just a more high-level area than V1? Like maybe like the V1 equivalent is like in the thalamus or something for the auditory system? Yes, yeah, so yeah. I was just going to say. So unlike the the poor, impoverished visual system, which only has you know, it has the very complex uh, retina and all of its its machinery, and then the LGN, but then you just get shunted immediately to V1. Right, whereas uh, the auditory system's already gone through like four or five nuclei before it gets to eight. cortex. And they're all talking to each other, and and, uh, and, uh, and and so by the time you get to cortex, they sort of, uh, what, uh, what David McAlpine, uh, a, uh, a uh, hilarious and fantastic auditory researcher refers to as the cooling blanket for the auditory brain. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, and, you know, you mentioned in your paper that you w- in future work, you might want to see if there are any tonotopic gradients in frontal areas like Saigon and Sereno saw for the, for the visual analog of this experiment. Um, did you have you gotten around to doing that yet? So I feel that is I have to say is a bit of a, a Captain Ahab moment for me. I keep trying, and we see like tantalizing, uh, tantalizing uh, suggestions of it, and then and then it kind of goes away. Hmm. Um, there definitely are what look like uh, 
a spectrally segregated fiber pathways potentially across across a few frontal regions. Um, but in terms of really finding, for instance, intentionally driven maps, we are not uh, like we don't have the evidence for that yet. Hmm, um, interesting. Uh, so that's not to say that they aren't there, but it wouldn't be surprising to me if they're really, really small compared to the the visual ones, uh, and more and more kind of individual varied compared again to the the visual ones. But certainly they're not coming out in the same way that that um, that the the ones in in frontal eye field and yeah because those are really quite striking yeah uh and 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 really uh quite consistent across individuals um it's worth also saying that that auditory uh auditory areas are just way smaller than visual ones Mm. um uh, way way smaller so they might just be really hard to see right Well, I guess you probably just haven't kept your subjects in the scanner for long enough. If you had them in there yeah. for six hours, you you might be able to answer these questions. <laughs> exactly. Cool. So, are you still kind of actively working on this, uh, you know, follow up to this project? Or yeah, very much. So we we have a number of projects now where we're trying to kind of more naturally uh, direct people's attention to to different parts of the spectrum uh, uh, using the kind of uh, these dimensional selective approaches where we uh, get people tacitly to to pay attention to a part of the spectrum and another uh, in the service of, of learning some kind of uh, auditory category, for instance, um, or in the service of not dying in a game. Um, <laughs> a plus. Uh, and and uh, uh, with Adam Tierney, we've also been exploring not really mapping approaches, uh, but more kind of dimensionally uh, dimension based approaches for instance of what happens when you when you have to attend to to um pitch cues versus a more amplitude or duration based cues in order to do a task um uh, how does how does your brain react to to that how does how does your kind of functional connectivity between different regions uh change as a function of of, of this kind of perceptual reweighting uh and and we've actually so kyle jasmine who is a, a postdoc in uh with uh adam and me uh showed really nicely how um music um participants uh uh seem to actually have quite different patterns of functional connectivity uh in these tasks mm-hmm. uh, compared to to um match non-music music uh controls so so we're doing quite a lot looking at at this kind of re, perceptual reweighting, uh, intentional reweighting approach uh, currently, as well as doing just you know more mapping. Yeah, more mapping. <laughs> There's always more mapping to be done yeah. if you've been trained by Marty Serino. Exactly. Cool. Well, I, I should. I think I've taken up all of our time. Um, so. You probably need to get back to your directing duties. <laughs> uh, yes, probably. Well, yes, I think I have to do some consulting on uh, on some new uh, new earbuds. So okay, yeah, and yeah, some cleaning and checking that needs to happen. Yes. Um, thanks so much for um, you know catching up with me today. Yeah, absolutely, a pleasure. And uh, and we should really do this in the flesh soon. Yeah, I mean, do you have any plans to come to the US anytime soon? Yeah, I'm going to be actually. I'm going to Pittsburgh in a couple of weeks, so oh. which uh, I was really hoping was closer to Nashville than it is. Yeah, it's a good solid day's drive. 
Yeah. But, but if you feel like doing a road trip, um, you know, I'm ready and waiting. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I was hoping that my, my personal helicopter, uh, would, would take me down, but, um, yeah, not, not to be. No. All right. Well, uh, have a, have a good trip. Thank you. And, uh, yeah, I'll catch up with you soon. Okay, great. Thanks a lot, Stephen. Yeah, sure. Take care. Okay. You too. Bye. Bye. Okay. Well, that's it for episode 20. Thanks to Fred for joining me on the podcast and thank you all for listening. I've linked the papers we talked about in the show notes and on the podcast website at langneurosci.org slash podcast. I'd like to thank the journal Neurobiology of Language for supporting transcription of today's episode. And I'd like to thank Marsha Pettit for transcribing the episode. See you next time.